Well, before our children are dismissed up to grade three for their biblical instruction, uh, let's recite aloud our memory passage that we're working on together as a church family. It's in Matthew chapter five. So we have one more Sunday in March. So this is uh, just a warning that next Sunday, it's likely we'll have a few less words there on the screen for us to cheat off of. Um, So this is the week to, in earnest, if you haven't already, uh, begin to uh, put this passage to memory. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. Let's recite this aloud together. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So let's continue to uh, work on memorizing this passage and meditating upon this passage as we seek to live out our mission together as a church family. I hope that our time of gathered worship has already been an encouragement to you. I hope that the truths that we have sung together have ministered um, hope to your heart. I was just was thinking this morning as we were singing, as we were praying, how blessed we are to be part of the family of God together and how incredibly generous God has been with us already. And if you're a guest here, I hope that you are struck with um, the scriptures this morning, not with our singing in and of itself, but struck with the truths of God's word that we've been shouting at one another. And maybe your heart has been too sad to sing this morning. That's okay. Uh, It's our hope that as you hear your brothers and sisters in Christ singing around you, that that will give you strength to continue to persevere and follow Jesus with faith. If you haven't already, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Find your way to Matthew chapter 5. If a Bible is new for you or kind of intimidating, it's understandable. It's a big book full of a lot of little books. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's, the Bible is categorized with Old Testament and New Testament. We're looking in Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. And you can find that on page 810 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. Or if you want to, go ahead and open up your smartphone or tablet, and you can find it that way. Matthew chapter 5. Today we're continuing our series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And that is a sermon that is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, And chapter 7, we've been looking at what Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom. And the kingdom he's referring to here is the kingdom of heaven. He has come preaching the kingdom of heaven, healing to authenticate that he truly is the sent one from God, bringing with him, inaugurating this kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he begins to preach more about that kingdom. Uh, Last week, as we looked together, uh, we learned that Jesus was setting the record straight about what he thought about the Old Testament scriptures. Contrary to what some might have thought, Jesus held the scriptures in high regard. He was actually coming to recover the authority and the meaning and the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. Whereas the scribes and the Pharisees had made lots of man-made rules and regulations and have been preaching those as if that was the scriptures. And all along, the people uh, had abandoned, really, the authorial intent of the scriptures, the original divine intent of the scriptures. 
Jesus didn't seem to trouble himself too much with all those scribal laws. He was accused of eating or, or working on the Sabbath as he was picking grains uh, or, or stalks or grain off the stalks as, as he and his disciples were walking. And uh, he was accused of breaking the law of healing on the Sabbath. And last week, if you remember, we looked at some of the absurdity of some of those scribal laws that had been added on top of the scriptures and had clouded the true meaning of the word of God. Well, in the section of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, verses 27 down through 37, Jesus is continuing to give examples to prove the thesis that he gave in verse 17 and following. If you look just a few verses up in verse 17, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus holds the Old Testament scriptures highly, not in iota, not the smallest little scribal mark of a letter would be pushed aside. Jesus did not come to tear down the Old Testament scriptures. He came to fulfill them. One of the problems in that day, as we looked at last week, was a drift that had been happening between the actual words of God and what was taught to be the word of God by the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, the scribes had added thousands of these rules and regulations, these small little laws, as an expression of obedience to God. But what happened is those man-made laws had actually taken the place of God's word. And this is why Jesus is repeating that phrase when he gives each of his examples to show that, verse 20, there's a kind of righteousness that is needed for the kingdom of heaven that goes beyond just external actions of obedience. External religious conformity is not enough for the, to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. There's a different kind of righteousness that's required, an internal kind of righteousness. And so if you see in verse uh, 21 and 22, he says, You have heard that it was said. And then verse 22, he says, But I say unto you. And then again in verse 27 and 28, he repeats that same type of phrase. You have heard that it was said. And then verse 28, But I say unto you. And then again, verse 31 and 32, It was also said. And then verse 32, But I say unto you. So what Jesus is doing here is he is recovering. He has come and he is authoritatively teaching and recovering what the Old Testament scriptures actually said. And so Jesus begins to give illustrations to prove his thesis that the Old Testament is authoritative and not to be cast aside. And contrary to what they thought in their day, that they thought, hey, we're, we're okay, we're keeping the law, we're satisfying the requirements of the law. Jesus is peeling back the layers and showing that, no, the kingdom, kingdom citizens actually have a righteousness that reaches into the halls of the heart. And so today we're going to look at three more examples where Jesus' authoritative recovers the true meaning of the Old Testament scriptures. And in doing so, he shows us how desperately we need a Savior. I hope the song we sang, His mercy is more, filled your heart with hope and comfort and encouragement. If you're not a Christian, I hope that song kind of makes you long to know that kind of truth. If you are a Christian, I hope the truth in that song that's echoing the scriptures encourages your heart in the Savior that we do have. The examples that Jesus gives that we're going to cover today include the topics of lust, divorce, and lying. Now, before we get into the specifics of these examples, I want us to spend just a little time together to better, under, to better appreciate why any of this matters for us today. What is Jesus doing? You know, we, we need to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching on the kingdom of heaven. So how does this 
have to do with, with how we live life in 21st century America? Well, as Jesus has been teaching on the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is describing what his kingdom and its citizens are like. So whatever idea or notion you have of the kingdom of God, we need to make sure that it's informed by the scriptures. So contrary to what we might think, external actions of religion aren't enough. Which, by the way, all of the other world religions present that in various ways. If you live this way, then you will get this reward. If you do this process or steps, then you will have this type of outcome. But Christianity teaches something dramatically different than that. And this is why in verse 20, Jesus says that there's, your righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, anybody that heard that in that day would have just kind of thought, well, then why even try? I mean, these are the guys that give themselves professionally to do that. These are professional law keepers. And if they're not satisfying the requirements of the kingdom of heaven, who is going to ever satisfy those requirements? That's exactly Jesus' point. And that's why in verse 21, he begins to give examples of how that internal righteousness is required. Now, at this point, it's likely that we don't appreciate being reminded that we don't have what it takes to be a kingdom citizen. If you're not a Christian, you might just be kind of irritated now that you come to a church and you've heard us sing and declare Jesus is great and wonderful, and then the preacher has the audacity to say, you can't live righteousness enough to please God. With enough determination and willpower, our world likes to offer to us that we can have our dreams, that we can achieve the life that we deserve. Sometimes we like to think that we can just give us enough attention to religion and we can kind of be religious and then therefore earn a favor from God and a standing before him. But all of us find ourselves incapable of conjuring up the kind of righteousness that God requires. So if you're not a Christian, I want for you to be sure to understand that true Christianity is not a religion to which a person outwardly conforms himself to. As if behaving as a Christian makes you a Christian. No. For sure, Christians behave like Christians in accord to God's word, yes, but true Christianity goes deeper than external behavior. True Christianity touches and transforms the innermost recesses of the heart by the power of God through his spirit. And this brings us to the central issue that, we, that Jesus is presenting to us here this morning. So this, uh, organizing this sermon is a little bit tough because he's going through examples. So how do you put those in the main points, right? So, by the way, I hope that you know that main points in the sermon are not inspired or authoritative, all right? It's simply a help to organize a passage so we can understand it together, okay? So if you have a better wording for a main point, write it down and let me know of it later, because I'd, I'd be happy to learn that. But here's a stab, okay? Jesus is getting at the heart of knowing him, the relationship, the heart of relationship with him. So to begin with, let's look at this. Kingdom citizens worship God from the heart. Kingdom citizens worship God from the heart. This is the the big truth that Jesus is trying to establish through these examples. Kingdom citizens worship God from the heart. These examples that, God, that Jesus gives shines a spotlight on that need. So I'm not sure what comes to mind when you think of the Old Testament. Maybe you've never read the Old Testament. Maybe you have. If you have read part of your Old Testament, maybe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books, what likely comes to mind is law. And that's because a lot of what you read in those books, not all, but a lot, especially in some of those books, like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it's a lot of laws that are given. And sometimes as a 21st century American, as we read that, we think, what does any of this have to do with my life today? I mean, so what? They wanted to put a fence around the top of their houses. You know, not, I'm not walking on my roof. Why do I need to read this? We kind of sometimes get in, you know, wound up in the, in the minutiae of all of that. 
There are hundreds of laws that have to deal with big matters like murder and little matters like clothing and facial hair. Can you believe it? So you might think, well, what's the point? Well, Deuteronomy, we know that what, what we know that the point is based on what is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and what Jesus said when he summarized the entire Old Testament scriptures. Once upon a time, Jesus was asked by a religious person, what are the greatest commandments, right? And Jesus answers in Matthew chapter 22, he says, uh, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus in Matthew 22, when he was asked that question, tells them the most important commandment is to love God. Now, Jesus wasn't saying something new. It wasn't like Jesus just kind of came up with this and was kind of giving this new interpretation of the law. Jesus was actually quoting from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the prophet of God, Moses, was saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here's what the law says. Deuteronomy chapter 6, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament. It's the word Deuteronomy actually comes up from two words, dut, which is second, namas, law, second giving of the law. And so all throughout Deuteronomy, as you read through all these laws, what we can do is we, we can miss that the laws are not the main emphasis. It's the heart of love to God that is the main emphasis. But we can miss that because we're kind of working through all those laws. And so all throughout those laws are constant reminders that God is after the heart of love from his people. Now I'm going to prove it to you by reading a succession of verses from the Old Testament. I'm going to go quickly. I'm going to have them there on the screen so you can follow along. But have we ever noticed this as we read through our Old Testament? Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Now pause there. Okay, I'm going to put a tack there. Now we might think in, in Deuteronomy, well, he's going to require all these actions of obedience. But what does he say? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, you see this? To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart. Those are terms of love, right? With all your soul. We would say that to somebody that we love. I love you with all my soul, right? And we don't think that's weird when you, when you say it to like a lover. But this is what God is talking to his people saying, I, as the lover of you, your people, as, as your God, want for you to love me with all of your heart and soul. Deuteronomy eleven thirteen. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, what are the commands summarized as? To love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy eleven twenty two. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, how did you summarize it? Loving the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 13.3 You shall not listen to the words of that prophet, false prophets, or that dreamer of dreams. Why? For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you, here it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart. So on and on throughout Deuteronomy, through all those laws, God is giving to his people constant reminders, love me, love me, love me. And that's not just the theme in Deuteronomy. It actually continues through the Old Testament. Joshua 22, verse 5, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. How did he describe it? To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways. Or the prophet Joel, right? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Hear this, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. 
You see how God Almighty is wooing His people back to Him. He's not just demanding obedience with, with external conformity to a religious code. No, He's expressing His heart to them, saying, I love you, now obey me, I love you. Now obey me as an expression of your love for me. So rule-keeping isn't enough. And Israel's religion, in many ways, had become a, an elaborate structure of rule-keeping. But for the Christian, true worship and true religion are always a matter of the heart. And that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah the prophet in Matthew 15 when he says, For the sake of your traditions, you have made the word, you have made void the word of God. That's what, it was, that's, that's what Jesus is correcting here in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. You hypocrites, Jesus says in Matthew 15. Well did Isaiah the prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So I hope now as we look at some of these examples that might sound very law-like, that we understand that Jesus is not driving for external conformity to a standard, but he is pursuing your heart. He is hungry for you to enjoy him in love. So what distinguishes true kingdom citizens is not merely religious activity, it's actually religious worship that is expressed through obedient actions that springs out of the heart of love. So how might sin lurk deep within our hearts? How might we be tempted to go through external religion thinking we're good, but yet our hearts, your sin lurks within? So that brings us now to the first of his examples, verse 27. So if you're a note-taker, I guess here's point number two. Adultery in the heart is sin. Adultery in the heart is sin. This is verses 27 through 30. In verse 27, Jesus is correcting what the people of the day commonly thought the Old Testament law forbid, namely the act of marital infidelity called adultery. That understanding is true, yes, but only in part. Jesus peels back the layers and shows that the law against adultery is rooted in covenant love. We know from the New Testament, like Ephesians 5 and other passages, Philippians, that love between husband and wife is to be a display of Christ's love for his people. In our adult Bible study class, The Meaning of Marriage, um, I know this is kind of a shameless advertisement for the class, but we have been finding ourselves continually being reminded of, those, of, those, of that reality, that marriage is not about self-expression and enjoyment and, and personal fulfillment. It's all about displaying the glory of God. And so therefore, we know that the sin of adultery begins much earlier than the actual act. The sin of adultery takes place in the heart through betraying covenant love when it gives way to lust. Lustful intent, not only lustful action, is what is forbidden by the law actually. In verse 28, that's what Jesus is saying, that I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery, where? With her in his heart. And so at this point, most of us would feel the weight and the guilt of this reality. Jesus erases any notion that we're able to achieve a righteousness of our own making, right? All the Pharisees might have felt smug that, you know, I'm not an adulterer. But yet, Jesus says, no, no, the issue is in the heart. The reality is, this reality of the kingdom of heaven demanding this kind of righteousness is why the Apostle Paul summarized our human condition in Romans 3 with these words, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's standard of perfection. He said, well, what are we supposed to do with this teaching from Jesus today? Well, we must let this teaching exert the force of conviction to our hearts that is needed. We must confess and repent of our sin. 
We live in an age that is saturated with temptations and trying to normalize what the Bible, what the Bible forbids. And so the scriptures here, Jesus in his own words says, we must take radical action to pursue the kind of loving faithfulness that we've been called to by the gospel of grace. Which is why he talks about in verses 29 and 30 that our response uh, to this issue of heart adultery, right, lust, is what? Well, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. In verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This illustration about Jesus saying, remove your eye, remove your hand, are two ways of saying the same thing. The right eye, that dominant eye, like for a warrior, for, for careful combat, or the right hand, the strong hand for, uh, for protection and, and, and uh, care of, of society. He's saying that, listen, there isn't really, he's saying in an exaggerated way, go as far as you must to prevent the sin from ruining your life and from robbing you of the joy of knowing God through loving him. And we know that Jesus is not telling his listeners to do self-amputation. I want to make sure we don't misunderstand that, okay? He's not saying go home and cut your hand off, literally. He is saying go to whatever lengths is necessary to prevent this temptation from taking root and controlling. We know that because in Matthew 18, Jesus uses similar phrases about, about your hand and your eye. And he, we know that context that is referring to removing whatever brings us temptation to sin, not actual self-amputation. So Matthew 5, we understand that Jesus is saying, do whatever you must to avoid the sin of adultery, but understand that the sin of adultery starts in the heart. So start being ruthless there. Take deliberate, even exaggerated efforts to prevent the sin of adultery, which starts in the heart is lust. I just want to encourage us in our society with the prevalence and the ease of access to that which would feed this type of sin Friends, don't hold back on doing war against sin. Let's put sin to death. And let's understand that we are a spiritual family to help one another do this. And so wherever you find yourself in this circumstance, okay, where Jesus is speaking about this matter, wherever you are, I want to encourage you that the church, family, the spirit, people of God is a means of grace to you, that we are together Soldiers in God's army doing war against sin. Let's help one another. Why must we be so aggressive against lust? Because being aggressive against lust flows out of a heart of love. It flows out of a heart of love. Jesus is not shaming people here. He is just revealing the true nature of Christian love. Think about it. You can tell who really loves their car by how they treat it or any object that you might like. Okay, If a car is not your object of, of possession love, okay, whatever it might be, a set of knives, or maybe that's weird, or I, whatever, okay, maybe you're an artist and you just love a particular set of, of pastels, or okay, whatever it is for you. You can tell how much a person loves that particular object by how they treat it. Just using the car, for example. You know, how, how much do they wash it and care for it in detail? How quickly are they, you know, getting to the car wash or washing it themselves to remove the dirt and grime of snow and chemicals and all that? And you can tell somebody who doesn't really love their car by how they don't treat it very well and very carefully. How much attention they do not give it. Well, if that is true about an inanimate object like a car, it would be even more true for a marriage. You can tell who truly biblically loves their spouse by how carefully they defend and protect that love in accord to what God says about marital love. And marital love is a covenant love. It is by nature an exclusive love. 
It is not, well, I feel loving to you because you're giving me what I'd like and deserve and appreciate, so therefore I'll be loving back to you. No, marriage by its very nature is a covenant-exclusive love. It sets apart love of brother and sister in a different way. A love of spouse is a covenant-exclusive love. And so the spouse who keeps the letter of the law by not carrying out the act of adultery, but all the while holds a heart of lustful intent towards others, has broken the same basic command. That's what Jesus is teaching. And what it does is it reveals the heart, the bankruptcy of heart that these religious elites that were around him had. That they needed a different kind of righteousness than the one they could, that they could behave. They needed a righteousness that could only be given through the declaration of God through a perfect Savior named Jesus Christ. But Jesus isn't finished. He continues to recover the true meaning of Old Testament law and pile up evidences against their false righteousness by moving, moving into verse 31 and 32. Divorced to avoid adultery is sin. I really struggle with trying to summarize this in a point. So here's a stab at it. Divorce to avoid adultery is sin. Verse 31 and 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, for the purposes of this sermon, we, as we look at these verses, we're going to focus on the primary reason that Jesus gave these, this instruction. These verses often get focused on in the discussion and the debate about whether or not divorce is ever biblically permitted. And so if you are all keyed up to think, all right, he, we're going to hear a sermon about whether or not divorce is permitted or not, this is going to disappoint you. But Jesus won't, Okay. Because remember, the reason that Jesus is giving this teaching here in Matthew 5, more will be said about that by Jesus in Matthew 19. And by the way, as a church family, we'll come back to this and discuss this in more detail. That is planned. The elders have discussed that. But for the purposes of this sermon, we're not going to do that today. The reason that Jesus gives these verses here in Matthew 5 is to show their and our heart of internal sinfulness. So what was happening in the day? Why is Jesus recovering this particular passage? The passage that Jesus refers to when it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, that actually is, well, you go to a couple of places. One most notable would be Deuteronomy 24. That passage, by the way, does not advocate divorce. It doesn't encourage divorce. It does recognize that in the community, the Israelite community, divorce happened. And so specifically in Deuteronomy 24, the passage details that if a woman has been divorced, she marries another man and then is either divorced or widowed. She cannot remarry her first husband. And so to be clear, Deuteronomy does not advocate divorce. It recognizes that divorce happens and it clarifies a circumstance pertaining to divorce. But over time what had happened in the life of Israel is the scribes had become legalistic about giving a certificate of divorce and they became excessively liberal in the grounds that were permitted for divorce. And that was a debated topic, okay? There were two rabbis that held differing views. You ready for some words that you'll forget when you walk out the door? Shemai and Hillel, all right? Those were the two rabbinical schools. Shemai was the conservative rabbi. He taught divorce was permitted only on the grounds of some form of sexual impurity or unfaithfulness, pornea, which is the word that Jesus uses here. Hillel was the broader interpretation, and he taught that husbands could divorce their wives for trivial matters, like spoiling a meal or being quarrelsome, and that's what was happening in the day. So I believe that the spirit of this passage that Jesus is addressing is that to avoid the adultery, divorces would be just handed out quickly and arbitrarily, capriciously, trivially. 
to release them from the, well, I'm not, it's not adultery because I divorced. They wanted to marry somebody else. They would divorce. On what grounds? Well, they would come up with absurd grounds and they would be protected by scribal law that said, okay, yeah, that's okay. You've done a divorce. So therefore now you're permitted to marry somebody else. And all it was was this elaborate technical law scheme to avoid the reality of, no, your hearts are are unfaithful. You can't just get married and then say you're not married and then get married to somebody else just to avoid the idea of adultery. This is why Jesus is going after. No, you still have the heart of an adulterer. You're not remaining in exclusive covenant love. And so he's revealing that their capricious, trivial divorces did not exonerate them from what was actually happening. Adultery. say, well, now what are we supposed to do with that? I know that, I'm, that I, this is rather, not rather, this is not politically correct. So a question that we might need to ask is, do we view marriage and therefore divorce the way God does? Or do we see it as a vehicle to achieve the desires of our heart? I'm not asking, do you have grounds for divorce or not? Um, the text is asking us to examine the sinful condition in our heart that urges us to find clever ways to break our marriage vows. In other words, are we willing to accept that, according to Jesus, there is such a thing as wrongful divorce and wrongful remarriage? Now, I know in our society that just even to, to suggest that is that we, you know, our individual rights rise up in protest to that. How dare you But friends, this might shock some of us. How dare anyone infringe on our right to personal satisfaction and happiness? But God does dare to do that because he is God. And he made marriage and his glory and our joy are at stake. Do we need to confess and repent of avoiding adultery through unbiblical divorce? By the way, however our lives are touched by this teaching today, I want to remind us of the song we sung this morning, His Mercy is More. Jesus here is not condemning them and leaving them there, but as we continue through, we're going to understand that ultimately all the scriptures, right, point to Jesus who is the fulfillment of all. And so when Jesus was surrounded by betrayal and covenant breaking, right? I mean, Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. Jesus is the covenant-keeping Messiah. And that's where you find hope. But take heart. God is steadfast in love. He abounds in mercy and he forgives. And he has come to save People like us that what? That try to find clever ways to pursue our sin. The righteousness of Jesus reaches into the halls of the heart that deeply and rescues and forgives and recovers. But Jesus goes on, verse 33 through verse 37. And here we learn that a deceitful heart is sin. A deceitful heart is sin. And 33 on, if in your Bible you might have some, some headings. The heading in my Bible here in the ESV, it says oaths. What is happening here is Jesus is following the same pattern. You've heard that it's been said, but I say unto you, the problem that Jesus confronts in these verses is the matter of truthfulness. Or in other words, telling the truth in what we say. Now, it's common for Israelites to make oaths or promises. Um, And I want to just pause and make sure we understand that Jesus is not forbidding oath-taking. For instance, like if you, for whatever reason, had to testify in court and they made you take that oath statement before you give your statement, you would not have scriptural grounds to say, I refuse to make that statement on the grounds of Matthew 5. Okay, that would not not stand. And Jesus is not talking about oath-taking entirely as wrong 
God himself has, had made, has made oaths of covenant keeping. Well, what's happening here was not that, that oaths were being made, it was that how they were being used in, in society. Now, this is kind of confusing because there's so much that's, that's, um, that has, was written about this. There's whole sections of scribal law that are given to oath-taking, and it's confusing, and it's elaborate, and it's detailed. Well, what happened is it was common for Israelites to make oaths or promises, and based on the grounds on which they swore the oath is what made the oath-breaking acceptable or unacceptable. I know, does that make any sense? So there were specific ways that you could word oaths that would be permissible for you to break the promise because of the way it was worded. But there were certain words that if you would invoke them in your oath-making, that you were bound to keep those oaths. So the rabbis taught that specific wording given in your oath would provide loopholes. Think of it that way, okay? Isn't it interesting how all of us are kind of personal lawyers, right? We all are, right? We've all been there. You can answer a certain way. I mean, we kind of have, well, technically, you know, or we kind of of maneuver our way through, you know, telling the truth or not. So, lest we think how, you know, how silly for them to do this, the spirit of that, of what was happening here, is in us, too. And that's what Jesus is revealing. So, for instance, um, this is why in, in, let's see, um, verse 34, it says, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, the holy city, for it is the city of the great king. So Jesus provides some examples of what commonly could be invoked in their oath-taking. If you swore by earth, it wasn't as big of a deal as swearing by heaven. If you swore by Jerusalem, the holy city, it wasn't as big a deal as swearing by heaven because that's where God is. And we're kind of, you know, the closer you get to God in your oathing is the more valuable that the oath was and, and the more binding it was. Well, Jesus just kind of shows the absurdity of all of that. And he says here, do you see this in verse 36? Um, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one here white or black. Let what you say be simply what? Yes or no? Anything more than this comes from what? Evil. Evil. Not just misunderstanding. Not just misaligned intention. Not just mistakes. But evil. The end result then was Israelites were in this elaborate scheme of making oaths and taking oaths and breaking oaths based upon how they said the oath. And Jesus calls this nonsense out and he sets the record straight. And he says, no, kingdom citizens don't, don't maneuver around that way. They don't, they, don't lurk, they don't let that evil within them lurk. What they do is they are truthful. Anything less is lying. Now remember, the citizens of the kingdom are to reflect and model the king of the kingdom. And so God, Jesus is establishing here that citizens of the kingdom are going to reflect and model the king of the kingdom. And one of the di- distinguishing features of the king is his truth. John says that Jesus was the word become flesh. And later on it says, sanctify them to thy truth, through, through your word. Thy, your word is truth. And he talks about the truthfulness of God. He cannot lie. All that he says, his promises will be fulfilled the whole character and nature of God rests upon his truthfulness, and so should ours as his kingdom citizens. And yet you had some that were calling themselves religious. They were going through all the religious expressions and activities and behaviors, technically not breaking the law right. We're feeling good about ourselves. 
that Jesus shows the bankruptcy of their hearts. How about us? Do we keep our word? No, I'm not saying technically, but actually. Is our yes a true yes? Is our no a true no? We might think we're okay by cleverly maneuvering away from breaking our word on technicalities, but in the end, we will all stand accountable before an all-knowing, all-seeing gaze of a holy God. He sees our heart and the deceitfulness that lies within us. And in that last day, do we really think that our technicality is going to matter to God? I mean, just imagine yourself, whatever the technicality is in your own conscience right now, that you're trying to cling to, to your rationalization, do you really think that, can you imagine yourself saying to God, well, technically God, and we just, as right, we just see the absurdity of it, don't we? Oh God, you're right. You're right. Well, what are we to do with all this? I hear you did. You came to church on a Sunday morning on a 9 a.m. service, which is early, right? Especially if you're getting kids out of the door. You come to church on a Sunday morning and the pastor here has just told you three times that you're sinful. Evil lurks within you. And you might be thinking, why even bother? What are we supposed to do with all this? I'm going to try to break this up okay, into two sections. To non-Christians and to Christians. Okay? If you are not a Christian, what are you to do with this? I have two steps for you to consider. Two steps. The first is admit that you are unrighteous. I hope that Jesus has convinced you of that so far. There's more to come, right? The sermon isn't over yet. I mean, if you look down in verse 38, you can cheat and look ahead. We encourage that looking ahead in the Bible, what's coming next week. Retaliation. Which, by the way, have you ever wondered just the order of this? I mean, he talks about lust, then he talks about divorce, then he talks about oaths, right? And we take vows in marriage, and then he talks about retaliation. You put it all together, I mean, boy, all of that can come up in our, in our relationships, right? I mean, marriage and adultery and oath vows and then retaliation when all of that comes out, right? So what are you to do? Admit that you are unrighteous. If you're not a Christian, I want, we, we want you to understand that Christianity is not about you trying to achieve a standard of life, of, of living a perfect way to achieve the righteousness of God. In whatever way you, you have been convicted of your sin, whether through lust or, or divorce or lying or whatever other way that the Spirit of God is pricking your conscience, you know, that, that internal you know, gatekeeper, I hope you understand that as Christians we have a, you can call this a, a strong doctrine of sin because we have, a, we have a stronger Savior. Can we say it that way? Admit that you are unrighteous. Your best efforts are not enough to rescue you from your sin because sin lurks deep within your heart. Will you admit your sinful condition before a holy and righteous God? If you're not a Christian, that would be step one. Step two, if you're not a Christian, is this. Will you embrace the righteousness of God promised that he promised to give you if you would embrace Jesus Christ? How are you going to be delivered from the guilt you feel if you're not a Christian? It is not work harder, do more, sacrifice some more, figure out some way to punish yourself so that you feel okay. No. What you need to do is confess and repent and believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is everything that God has said he is for you. That Jesus is God's sent one who's perfectly fulfilled all the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, like I said before, in, when Jesus was surrounded by unfaithfulness, he was the faithful one, which is why you can hope in him. When Jesus was surrounded by liars, he was the truthful one going to the cross. 
Will you embrace Jesus Christ? This is why the Apostle Paul describes Jesus this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to, the glo- to God for His glory. If you're not a Christian, all of your sinning is simply an effort for you to satisfy that internal longing of your heart. And God is offering that full satisfaction to you through Jesus Christ. Will you return from your love affair with sin and embrace Jesus to be your treasure and only hope for eternal life? That is what you should do with this passage. Let the, let the conviction that God is graciously granting you drive, him to, drive you to Him. And, but understand how He's driving you to Him. He's driving you to Him through kindness. He's showing you your error and your sin but he is the one that satisfies all of that, that forgives all of that, that cleanses you from all of that. If you're not a Christian, confess, repent, and believe. That's what is called justification. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be declared by God to be righteous. So Highlands Baptist Church, if you're a guest here, you need to understand Highlands Baptist Church is not a perfect church. We are not perfect people. We're Christians, yes, but we're not perfect we have been declared righteous. We are, by the power of God's strength, living out that righteousness more and more from day to day. But we put up with a lot of unrighteousness in that we see it in each other and we love each other through it and we show each other the perfectness of Jesus Christ so we can repent and believe and continue to grow in what it means to be a Christian. And we would love to have you join us on that adventure. If you are a Christian, what are you to do with this? I have two steps for you if you are a Christian. Step one, Repent. You say, oh, hang on, that sounds just like the non-Christian. Yes. Repent. You see, Christians are people who have repented and believed, and they keep repenting and believing because Jesus is their Savior. Not once, but always. So, in what way, as a Christian, has God pricked your conscience with this truth? Repent. You'll never experience the joy of forgiveness without turning the key of repentance. Step two, Stand firm in the righteousness that is yours through Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you came in here as a Christian this morning and you came in just with a guilty conscience, thinking, thinking back on your last week and how you lived and your choices, some of those secret choices nobody else knows, but you know God knows, and you just feel overwhelmed by this burden of guilt. You feel as if you're kind of this you know, subpar Christian, really not, you know, you really shouldn't be singing and you really shouldn't, uh, how do you even pray with these people? I mean, you feel like you're a fake Well, admit that you have been living with sin. Admit the absurdity that sin could be your Savior and turn back to the one who loves you, Jesus Christ. Stand firm in the righteousness that is yours through Jesus Christ. One of the dangers as a Christian is we can drift into thinking, right? We believe that Jesus is our righteous one, but then we can start to behave, function, as if we earn our righteousness. This passage should show you the absurdity of that. You can't. Stand firm in the righteousness that is yours in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, stand firm in that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Remember this truth, Christian. Because of him, Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Everything that you need to have a relationship with God has been provided to you through Jesus Christ. And it is only yours through faith, not through earning. So repent of your sin and stand firm in the position that has been granted to you by God through Jesus Christ. That is why we can sing loud praise to God. That is why we can pray for one another. 
We're not praying for one another, the perfects praying for the imperfects. No. We're all united together as this motley crew, right? Redeemed sinners that are giving praise to a great and glorious Savior. So comfort your heart in the fact that God promises to hold you fast because of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite our music team to come forward. And as they do, I'd like the rest of us just to go ahead and bow our heads. And I give us just a minute to give silent reflection and prayer on this. If you're not a Christian, we'd love for you to become one. If you are a Christian, remember all that you have in Christ. I'm going to give us some time of silent reflection, and then I'll close us in prayer, and then we'll sing a response, giving praise to God that Jesus Christ is the one that will hold us fast.